Chapter twenty six, part three of volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume three of a popular history of France from the earliest times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter twenty six. The Wars of Italy. Charles the Eighth. 1483-1498, Part Three. Charles the Eighth was pleased with and proud of himself. He had achieved a brilliant and a difficult marriage. In Europe, and within his own household, he had made a display of power and independence. In order to espouse Anne of Brittany, he had sent back Marguerite of Austria to her father. He had gone in person and withdrawn from prison his cousin Louis of Orléans, whom his sister Anne de Beaujeu had put there and so far from having got embroiled with her, he saw all the royal family reconciled around him. This was no little success for a young prince of twenty-one. He thereupon devoted himself with ardour and confidence to his desire of winning back the kingdom of Naples, which Alfonso I, king of Aragon, had wrested from the house of France, and of thereby reopening for himself in the east, and against Islamry, that career of Christian glory which had made a saint of his ancestor Louis the Ninth. Mediocre men are not safe from the great dreams which have more than once seduced and ruined the greatest men. The very mediocre son of Louis the Eleventh, on renouncing his father's prudent and by no means chivalrous policy, had no chance of becoming a great warrior and a saint. But not the less did he take the initiative as to those wars in Italy which were to be so costly to his successors and to France. By two treaties concluded in 1493, one at Barcelona on the 19th of January, and the other at Senlis on the 23rd of May, he gave up Roussillon and Cerdagne to Ferdinand the Catholic, King of Aragon, and French Comte, Artois, and Charolais to the House of Austria, and after having at such a lamentable price purchased freedom of movement, he went and took up his quarters at Lyon to prepare for his Neapolitan venture. In his council he found loyal and able opponents. On the undertaking of this trip, says Philip de Comen, one of those present, there was many a discussion, for it seemed to all folks of wisdom and experience very dangerous. All things necessary for so great a purpose were wanting. The king was very young, a poor creature, willful, and with but a small attendance of wise folk and good leaders no ready money, neither tents nor pavilions for wintering in Lombardy. One thing good they had, a lusty company full of young men of family, but little under control. The chiefest warrior of France at this time, Philip de Crivecourt, Marshal d'Escarre, threw into the opposition the weight of his age and of his recognized ability. The greatness and tranquillity of the realm, said he, depend on possession of the low countries. That is the direction in which we must use all our exertions, rather than against a state, the possession of which, so far from being advantageous to us, could not but weaken us. Unhappily, says the latest learned historian of Charles the Eighth, the veteran marshal died on the 22nd of April, 1494, in a small town some few leagues from Lyon, and thenceforth all hope of checking the current became visionary. On the 8th of September, 1494, Charles the Eighth started from Grenoble, crossed Mount Genevre, and went and slept at Aux, which was territory of Piedmont. In the evening a peasant who was accused of being a master of votary was brought before him. The king gave him audience, 
and then handed him over to the provost, who had him hanged on a tree. By such an act of severity, perpetrated in a foreign country, and on the person of one who was not his subject, did Charles the Eighth distinguish his first entry into Italy. It were out of place to follow out here in all its details a war which belongs to the history of Italy far more than to that of France. It will suffice to point out with precision the positions of the principal Italian states at this period, and the different shares of influence they exercised on the fate of the French expedition. Six principal states, Piedmont, the Kingdom of the Dukes of Savoy, the Duchy of Milan, the Republic of Venice, the Republic of Florence, Rome and the Pope, and the Kingdom of Naples, coexisted in Italy at the end of the fifteenth century. In August, 1494, when Charles the Eighth started from Lyon on his Italian expedition, Piedmont was governed by Blanche of Montferrat, widow of Charles, the warrior Duke of Savoy, in the name of her son, Charles John Amadeo, a child only six years old. In the Duchy of Milan the power was in the hands of Ludovic Sforza, called the Moor, who, being ambitious, faithless, lawless, unscrupulous, employed it in banishing to Pavia the lawful duke, his own nephew, John Gallius Mario Sforza, of whom the Florentine ambassador said to Ludovic himself, This young man seems to me a good young man, and animated by good sentiments, but very deficient in wits. He was destined to die ere long, probably by poison. The Republic of Venice had at this period for its doge, Augustin Barbarigo, and it was to the Council of Ten that in respect of foreign affairs, as well as of the Home Department, the power really belonged. Peter de' Medici, son of Lorenzo de' Medici, the father of the Muses, was feebly and stupidly, though with all the airs and pretensions of a despot, governing the Republic of Florence. Rome had for Pope Alexander the Sixth, Paterigo Borgia, a prince who was covetous, licentious, and brazen-facedly fickle and disloyal in his policy, and who would be regarded as one of the most utterly demoralized men of the fifteenth century, only that he had for a son a Caesar Borgia. Finally, at Naples, in 1494, three months before the day on which Charles the Eighth entered Italy, King Alfonso the Second ascended the throne. No man, says Comyn, was ever more cruel than he, or more wicked, or more vicious and tainted, or more gluttonous, dangerous, however, than his father, King Ferdinand, the which did take in and betray folks whilst giving them good cheer, kindly welcome, as hath been told to me by his relatives and friends, and who did never have any pity or compassion for his poor people. Such in Italy, whether in her kingdoms or her republics, were the heads with whom Charles the Eighth had to deal, when he went, in the name of a disputed right, three hundred leagues away from his own kingdom, in quest of a bootless and ephemeral conquest. The reception he met with at the outset of his enterprise could not but confirm him in his illusory hopes. While he was at Lyon, engaged in preparations for his departure, Duke Charles of Savoy, whose territories were the first he would have to cross, came to see him on a personal matter. "'Cousin, my good friend,' said the king to him, "'I am delighted to see you at Lyon, for if you had delayed your coming, I had intended to go myself to see you, with a very numerous company, in your own dominions.' where it is likely such a visit could not but have caused you loss. "'My lord,' answered the duke, "'my only regret at your arrival in my dominions would be that I should be unable to give you such welcome there is as due to so great a prince. However, whether here or elsewhere, I shall be always ready to beg that you will dispose of me and all that pertains to me, 
just as of all that might belong to your own subjects. Duke Charles of Savoy had scarcely exaggerated. He was no longer living in September 1494, when Charles VIII demanded of his widow Blanche, regent in the name of her infant son, a free passage for the French army over her territory, and she not only granted his request, but when he entered Turin, she had him received exactly as he might have been in the greatest cities of France. He admired the magnificent jewels she wore, and she offered to lend them to him. He accepted them, and soon afterwards borrowed on the strength of them twelve thousand golden ducats. So ill-provided was he with money. The fair regent, besides, made him a present of a fine black horse, which Colman calls the best in the world, and which, ten months later, Charles rode at the Battle of Fornovo, the only victory he was to gain on retiring from this sorry campaign. On entering the country of the Milanese, he did not experience the same feeling of confidence that Piedmont had inspired him with. Not that Ludovic the Moor hesitated to lavish upon him assurances of devotion. Sir, said he, I have no fear for this enterprise. There are in Italy three powers which we consider great, and of which you have one, which is Milan, another, which is the Venetians, does not stir, so you have only to do with that of Naples, and many of your predecessors have beaten us when we were all united. If you will trust me, I will help to make you greater than ever was Charlemagne, and when you have in your hands this kingdom of Naples, we shall easily drive yon Turk out of the empire of Constantinople. These words pleased Charles VIII mightily, and he would have readily pinned his faith to them, but he had at his side some persons more clear-sighted, and Ludovic had enemies who did not deny themselves the pleasure of enlightening the king concerning him. He invited Charles to visit Milan. He desired to parade before the eyes of the people his alliance and intimate friendship with the powerful king of France. But Charles, who had at first treated him as a friend, all at once changed his demeanor and refused to go to Milan, so as not to lose time. Ludovic was too good a judge to make any mistake in the matter, but he did not press the point. Charles resumed his road to Piacenza, where his army awaited him. At Pavia, vows, harangues, felicitations, protestations of devotion, were lavished upon him without restoring his confidence. Quarters had been assigned to him within the city. He determined to occupy the castle, which was in a state of defense. His own guard took possession of the guard-posts, and the watch was doubled during the night. Ludovic appeared to take no notice, and continued to accompany the king as far as Piacenza, the last town in the state of Milan. Into it Charles entered with seventy-eight hundred horse, many Swiss foot, and many artillerymen and bombardiers. The Italian population regarded this army with an admiration tinged with timidity and anxiety. News was heard there to the effect that young John Gallius, nephew of Ludovic the Moor and lawful Duke of Milan, was dead. He left a son, five years old, for whom he had at Pavia implored the king's protection. I will look upon him as my own, King Charles had answered as he fondled the child. Ludovic set out in haste for Milan, and it was not long before it was known that he had been proclaimed duke and put in possession of the duchy. Distrust became general throughout the army. Those who ought to have known best told me, says Coleman, that several, who had at first commended the trip, now found fault with it, and that there was a great inclination to turn back. However, the march was continued forward, and on the twenty-ninth of October, 1494, the French army encamped before Sarzana, a Florentine town. Ludovic the Moor suddenly arrived in the camp with new proposals of alliance, on new conditions. 
Charles accepted some of them, and rejected the principal ones. Ludovic went away again on the 3rd of November, never to return. From this day the King of France might reckon him amongst his enemies. With the Republic of Florence was henceforth to be Charles's business. Its head, Peter de' Medici, went to the camp at Sarzana, and Philip de Comyn started on an embassy to go and negotiate with the Doge and Senate of Venice, which was the chiefest of the Italian powers, and the territory of which lay far out of the line of march of the King of France and his army. In the presence of the King of France and in the midst of his troops, Peter de' Medici grew embarrassed and confused. He had gone to meet the king without the knowledge of the Florentines, and was already alarmed at the gravity of his situation, and he offered more concession and submission than was demanded of him. Those who treated with him, says Coleman, told me, turning him to scorn and ridicule, that they were dumbfounded at his so readily granting so great a matter, and what they were not prepared for. Feelings were raised to the highest pitch at Florence when his weaknesses were known. There was a numerous and powerful party, consisting of the Republicans and the envious, hostile to the Medicis, and they eagerly seized the opportunity of attacking them. A deputation, comprising the most considerable men of the city, was sent, on the 5th of November, to the King of France, with a commission to obtain from him more favorable conditions. The Dominican, Jerome Savonarola, at that time popular oracle of Florence, was one of them. With a pious hauteur that was natural and habitual to him, he adopted the same tone towards Charles as towards the people of Florence. Hearken thou to my words, said he, and grave them upon thy heart. I warn thee in God's name that thou must show thyself merciful and forbearing to the people of Florence, if thou wouldest that he should aid thee in thy enterprise. Charles, who scarcely knew Savonarola by name, answered simply that he did not wish to do the Florentines any harm, but that he demanded a free passage, and all that had been promised to him. I wish to be received at Florence, he added, to sign there a definitive treaty which shall settle everything. At these cold expressions the ambassadors withdrew in some disquietude. Peter de' Medici, who was lightly confident, returned to Florence on the 8th of November, and attempted again to seize the supreme power. A violent outbreak took place. Peter was as weak before the Florentine populace as he had been before the King of France, and having been harried in his very palace, which was given up to pillage, it was only in the disguise of a monk that he was able, on the 9th of November, to get out of the city in company with his two brothers, Julian and Cardinal John de' Medici, of whom the latter was to be, ten years later, Pope Leo X. Peter and his brothers having been driven out, the Florentines were anxious to be reconciled with Charles VIII. Both by political tradition and popular bias, the Florentine Republic was favorable to France. Charles, annoyed at what had just taken place, showed but slight inclination to enter into negotiation with them, but his wisest advisers represented to him that, in order to accomplish his enterprise and march securely on Naples, he needed the goodwill of Florence, and the new Florentine authorities promised him the best of receptions in their city. Into it Charles entered on the 17th of November, 1494, at the head of all his army. His reception on the part of officials and populace was really magnificent. Negotiation was resumed. Charles was at first very exacting. The Florentine negotiators protested. One of them, Peter Caponi, a man of great wits and great courage, says Giacardini, highly esteemed for those qualities in Florence, and issue of a family which had been very powerful in the Republic, 
when he heard read the exorbitant conditions proposed to them on the king's behalf, started up suddenly, took the paper from the secretary's hands, and tore it up before the king's eyes, saying, Since you impose upon us things so dishonorable, have your trumpets sounded, and we will have our bells rung. And he went forth from the chamber together with his comrades. Charles and his advisers thought better of it. Mutual concessions were made. A treaty, concluded on the 25th of November, secured to the King of France a free passage through the whole extent of the Republic, and a sum of one hundred and twenty thousand golden florins, to help towards the success of the expedition against Naples, the Commune of Florence engaged to revoke the order putting a price upon the head of Peter de' Medici, as well as confiscating his goods, and not to enforce against him any penalty beyond prescription from the territory, and the honour as well as the security of both the contracting parties having thus been provided for, Charles the Eighth left Florence, and took, with his army, the road towards the Roman states. Having, on the 7th of December, 1494, entered Aquapedente, and on the 10th, Viterbo, he there received, on the following day, a message from Pope Alexander the Sixth, who in his own name and that of Alfonso the Second, King of Naples, made him an offer of a million ducats to defray the expenses of the war, and a hundred thousand livres annually, on condition that he would abandon his enterprise against the kingdom of Naples. "'I have no mind to make terms with the Aragonese usurper,' answered Charles. "'I will treat directly with the Pope when I am in Rome, which I reckon upon entering about Christmas. I have already made known to him my intentions. I will forthwith send him ambassadors commissioned to repeat them to him.' And he did send to him the most valiant of his warriors, Louis de la Tremoy. "'The which was there,' says the contemporary chronicler, Jean Boucher, with certain speakers, who, after having pompously reminded the Pope of the whole history of the French kingship, in its relations with the papacy, ended up in the following strain. Prayeth you, then, our sovereign lord the king, not to give him occasion to be, to his great sorrow, the first of his lineage who ever had war and discord with the Roman Church, whereof he and the Christian kings of France, his predecessors, have been protectors and augmenters. More briefly, and with an affection of sorrowful graciousness, the Pope made answer to the ambassador. If it please King Charles, my eldest spiritual son, to enter into my city without arms in all humility, he will be most welcome. But much would it annoy me if the army of thy king should enter, because that, under shadow of it, which is said to be great and riotous, the factions and bands of Rome might rise up and cause uproar and scandal, wherefrom great discomforts might happen to the citizens." For three weeks the king and the pope offered the spectacle, only too common in history, of the hypocrisy of might pitted against the hypocrisy of religion. At last the pope saw the necessity of yielding. He sent for Prince Ferdinand, son of the king of Naples, and told him that he must no longer remain at Rome with the Neapolitan troops, for that the king of France was absolute about entering, and he at the same time handed him a safe conduct under Charles's own hand. Ferdinand refused the safe conduct, and threw himself upon his knees before the Pope, asking him for his blessing. "'Rise, my dear son,' said the Pope, "'go, and have good hope. God will come to our aid.' The Neapolitans departed, and on the 1st of January, 1495, Charles the Eighth entered Rome with his army, saying gentlewise, according to Brantome, that a while agone he had made a vow to my lord St. Peter of Rome, and that of necessity he must accomplish it at the peril of his life. Behold him, then, entered into Rome, continues Brantome, in bravery and triumph, himself armed at all points, 
with lance on thigh, as if he would fain pick forward to the charge. Marching in this fine and furious order of battle, with trumpets a-sounding and drums a-beating, he enters in and takes his lodging, by the means of his harbingers, wheresoever it seems to him good, has his bodies of guards set, posts his sentinels about the place, and districts of the noble city, with no end of rounds and patrols, has his tribunals and his gallows planted in five or six different spots, his edicts and ordinances being published and proclaimed by sound of trumpet, as if he had been in Paris. Go find me ever a king of France who did such things, save Charlemagne. Yet trow I he did not bear himself with authority, so superb and imperious. What remained, then, more for this great king, if not to make himself full master of this glorious city which had subdued all the world in days of yore, as it was in his power to do, and as he perchance would fain have done, in accordance with his ambition, and with some of his counsel, who urged him mightily thereto, if it were only for to keep himself secure. But far from this, violation of holy religion gave him pause, and the reproach that might have been brought against him of having done offence to his holiness, though reason enough had been given him, on the contrary, he rendered him all honour and obedience, even kissing in all humility his slipper. No excuse is required for quoting this fragment of Brantome for it gives the truest and most striking picture of the conditions of facts and sentiments during this transitory encounter between a madly adventurous king and a brazen-facedly dishonest pope. Thus they passed four weeks at Rome, the pope having retired at first to the Vatican and afterwards to the castle of Sant'Angelo, and Charles remaining master of the city, which in a fit of mutual ill-humour and mistrust was for one day given over to pillage and the violence of the soldiery. At last, on the 15th of January, a treaty was concluded which regulated pacific relations between the two sovereigns, and secured to the French army a free passage through the states of the Church, both going to Naples and also returning, and provisional possession of the town of Citivavecchia, on condition that it should be restored to the Pope when the King returned to France. On the 16th and 19th of January the Pope and the King had two interviews, one private and the other public at which they renewed their engagements, and paid one another the stipulated honours. It was announced that, on the 23rd of January, the Aragonese king of Naples, Alfonso II, had abdicated in favour of his son, Ferdinand II, and on the 28th of January, Charles VIII took solemn leave of the Pope, received his blessing, and left Rome, as he had entered it, at the head of his army, and more confident than ever in the success of the expedition he was going to carry out. End of chapter 26, part 3